Welcome to Insights, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is climate change, risks, and opportunities, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Jamie Kramer, Global Head of Strategic Product Management and ESG Lead for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And with me today is Leslie Rich, Utilities Analyst in the U.S. Equity Research Team and Global Sector Lead, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. And Amanda Wallace, Investment Principal in the Infrastructure Investments Group, J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Welcome to Insights. Thanks for having us. Glad to be here. Given your roles as investors, can we start with how you incorporate environmental, social, and governance risks into your daily investing? Leslie, let's start with you. So from an equity perspective, it's incorporated into every decision every day because I follow the utility sector and they are on the front lines in terms of dealing with climate-related issues um, because they generate power that uh, produces carbon dioxide emissions or because they're trying to avoid that by um, incorporating distributed generation such as solar into their um, portfolios. How does that impact their business model? How do we think about the evolution of their earnings and cash flow and revenues over time as we continue this giant transformation of the power generation grid from 2005 to 2025. That transformation of the power grid, what percent of energy, utility energy today is renewable? So I'm going to start with the the opposite side, which is coal. So if you go back uh, a decade, we were 60% coal-fired generation in this country. We're now down to 30 um, and likely to decline even further. Renewable generation started out as zero. You know, it really started from scratch. Now it's up to 7% and growing. Amanda, from an infrastructure perspective, how do you incorporate ESG risks into your investing? So ESG is a primary focus for us. As long-term investors into critical infrastructure, we need to focus on long-term operational sustainability. So that includes governance and having governance rights. Being a private investor, we can take majority positions. We can control and and actively uh, enhance what our companies are doing and what our investors require, make sure our investors' objectives are being met. From a social perspective, health and safety is paramount of our employees, of our communities, uh, and of our customers. And then obviously the environment is part of our underwriting, our thoughts around you know heating days going up and our thoughts around extreme weather events, potentially impacting our ability to provide essential services to our communities has to be part of our underwriting from an acquisition standpoint and has to be part of our long-term ownership. So Amanda, how do you define climate risk? So for us, it is twofold. It is the sort of global warming of temperatures and it is also the increase in extreme weather events. One of our... Um, Assets was hit twice within an 18-month period with what was termed a 100-year storm. So these things are supposed to happen once every 100 years. They happen twice in 18 months. We had resiliency. We continue to build resiliency there. But if we're not planning to be in a place where we can handle those sorts of storms, then then the power is going to go off or or something along those lines. So we have to be prepared. I could touch on that from a public company perspective. So the public utilities also got hit with a lot of storms over the past several years. And so they're now focusing their investment on storm hardening, um, replacing wooden poles with concrete poles, uh, building up, uh, lifting their substations up so that they're raised off sea level so that, for example, when Hurricane Sandy hit, 
a lot of the power went out because the substations were flooded. So grid resiliency and grid hardening is a big focus for capital spending and uh, earnings growth, frankly, for the utilities. From an investment standpoint, why should investors be concerned about climate risk? You mentioned what the companies are doing, but from an investment perspective, how do you think about which companies are better prepared? Is it which companies are more affected? Um, how do you think about it? How does it get into your long-term cash flow numbers? It really comes down to the reaction to it. So before we pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, and while we still had a clean power plan in place to regulate carbon emissions, companies were creating their strategies around how do we reduce our carbon footprint. And that included shutting coal plants and building gas plants and renewables, fine, but also investing in energy efficiency. And that's where it can really impact business models because it reduces demand for the product. So as you replace appliances and go in and do home audits of your heating and air conditioning systems and put in smart thermostats and hook them up to smart appliances, you start reducing demand for the product. So that really makes me think about the long-term growth prospects of these companies because if you don't have growth in demand, and in fact, in California, you have demand for electricity declining by 5% a year, what does that mean for the business model? So that's really part of the way to incorporate that thinking into the long-range forecasts. And those also hit, for example, water utilities. So in, in California, water demand is going down. There's been drought restrictions for long enough that the actual behavior of the consumer has now changed. So even though the drought has been lifted, water companies in the California region are seeing a reduced demand, and so therefore it impacts their finances. Same thing with sort of heating companies to the extent that it's not as cold. It's not even a question of consumer behavior. It's simply not as cold. And so you're going to lose a financial benefit that you thought in your underwriting from a private company perspective you would have for a longer period of time. Amanda, you mentioned California, which leads into my next question. Is climate risk more prominent in certain industries, sectors, and geographies? Yeah, so I think it affects everyone directly or indirectly or it's going to. You know, obviously storms... uh, will do so and so will global warming, but there's certainly a more direct impact in given geographies and, and given sectors. For example, storm activity is going to be on coastlines, whether in the U.S. or in Europe or, or in, in other continents as well, and, and you're going to have more of an effect on those areas than you are in, the, in sort of the inlands. Um, but as far as actual warming temperatures go, they're going to affect throughout the world. There's also opportunities to that, right? So if you have a solar plant in a place that used to be a little bit cloudy, you're going to get better irradiation and better returns on your on your capital as a result of having it in a place that didn't used to have that that sort of sunny climate. Um, and as Where we are those about, sunny climates? Maybe some of our listeners might want to move there. They may. You might want to buy a nice sunshine property in, in the north of England, which you wouldn't have imagined 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that I'm from the north of England, uh, so I'm allowed to make that comment. <laughs> um, but, you know, for example, the warming trend. So if you have a heating company, there are less days that people are required to turn on their heat because it's warm enough outside that you don't need heat. And so that's happening throughout the world. Places that you used to have X amount of demand for heat, so call it 100 days a year, now it's 98. It's going to 97. It's going to 90. And so your financials are directly impacted by the warming trend. Leslie, can you give us examples of climate concerns within utilities? Similar to what uh, Amanda said, we look at those 
companies or regions where, for example, they derived a lot of their revenues in the winter, and now the winters are much warmer. So think about upper Midwest, you know, Chicago, uh, the Northeast. Um, The Northeast is a great example, because if you think back to the polar vortex, do you remember that in 2014? It was really, really, really cold. And so as a result of that, New England said, we need to build infrastructure like crazy because power prices went soaring and they were, they couldn't import LNG, liquefied natural gas to, to bring down power prices and consumer rates went through the roof. So lots of new infrastructure was proposed. It was delayed because it's very difficult, not in my backyard. People didn't want to see this infrastructure. But in the meantime, even without the infrastructure, the prices of power have come way back down because, lo and behold, the past couple of winters have been quite mild. And so the shortage pricing and the profit opportunity for some of those companies isn't as great. But from an investor's perspective, that's it's a good place to be looking. Are you trying to pivot a little bit? If you used to make most of your money in the winter, are you looking at cooling, going right. into a cooling business or something around that? And how do you, you know, sort of monetize those opportunities that the climate change might bring as well? So summers can be hotter as well. So if you look at companies in the Southeast, for example, they benefit from customer growth as people retire and move south, and those economies are very vibrant. But yet their overall electricity demand isn't growing even with the hotter summers as much as it would have because of the muting impact of energy efficiency and customers consuming. We're even seeing a trend, and I don't know if you've seen this, for new homes being built that are now net zero energy consumption. So there's a concept where you could put in a whole housing development and between uh, batteries, microgrids, maybe um, community solar, uh, solar on the rooftops, a home can actually consume no power. Hmm. Interesting. That's not my home, unfortunately. (laughs) So we've talked about Climate risks. Can we talk a little bit about, I know we've talked about this, Leslie, and you've shared with me some opportunities that have been created through climate change and how some of the companies that you follow, you're very excited about because they're transforming their business models. So can you, we always talk about climate risk. Can we switch a little bit to climate opportunity? Yeah, there are some really big opportunities. So renewable development is now so economic. Uh, The prices for an efficiency of both solar panels and wind turbines has improved so much that they are now cost competitive relative to fossil fuels. So you are seeing... Without subsidies, they are on their own cost competitive. And that's only been in the last maybe five to eight years and even less that they become, without subsidies, truly cost competitive. So even without the Paris Climate Accord, even without the Clean Power Plan, utilities and states are going ahead and building more renewables because they're cheap. They're cheap. So states are going ahead and saying, wow, I can lower the cost for customers and clean my air. This is a win-win. Totally agree with that. And because they're so cheap, the utilities are getting that power at a cheaper price than they ever have before. As an infrastructure investor, we look at long-term contracts that give us a steady stream of income. And as we see in the market right now, given the cost competitiveness, the ability to source long-term contracts at a reasonable return is, is actually coming down a little bit. So beneficial for the utilities, different aspects to it for the, for the solar and the wind companies themselves. And so with this great migration to renewables, still fossil fuel contributes the most to greenhouse gas emissions. 
What are the utility companies, or what could they do? I th- think you may- had mentioned batteries and how excited you got when you started talking about batteries and when can they actually store enough energy. Can you talk about that as an industry and what you're seeing? Truthfully, I think the auto manufacturers have sort of led the way because they have the size, scale, and scope to really try to get this battery technology right. But we can just um, glom onto that. (laughs) And so uh, right now, the industry is trying to focus on how many hours of power can the battery store. So if they can only store 15 minutes of power, it doesn't really do us much good, even on a hot day. But if they can start storing four hours, eight hours, 16 hours... Well, think about that. On a sunny day, when you're generating more power than you need, you could fill up your battery, you drive your Tesla home from work, you plug it in, turn on all your lights, and you cook dinner, and you run your laundry, and etc. and your demand in your house would go up, but that's when you start draining your battery that you stored during the day. And then you go to bed, and the battery's drained, and it recharges the next day. So that's a way where a home could be relatively self-sufficient over time. And if you look at it on a utility scale, so currently the problem is intermittency for, from the utilities. So they have these solar power coming in during the daylight hours, but demand, as, as Leslie mentioned, goes up at night when everyone goes back home, and they have to rely on natural gas or fossil fuel to provide that power. If they have utility-scale batteries, then they can pull what was solar power throughout the busy time. Wouldn't that trend decrease the cash flows for the companies that you follow? Yes. So and for the companies you invest in? in so the solar, solar facilities, if they don't have an intermittency problem, if they have the batteries, actually will benefit tremendously. But from a utility perspective, yes. So how do you, when you're weighing investing in one company versus the other, take that into consideration? Well, so that's the benefit of our approach at J.P. Morgan is that we take a long view and we develop frameworks and we come up with, you know, over the next three, five, ten years – how do you think about winners and losers, big trends, where where the puck is going? And so I just came back from a conference meeting with regulators from California and Florida and, you know, um, just thinking about is there a way that the incumbent regular old utility business model survives or does it really have to transform materially? So then comes the judgment of which companies are changing and adapting and looking forward versus which ones are stuck in the mud, have their heads buried in the sand, and just won't change unless the EPA tells them to. Leslie, you have the ability of talking to the managements and engaging with them. As an analyst, You have the insight and the capability of understanding deeply what these companies have. But for an average investor, if you thought that they should focus on one or two disclosures, you would recommend companies having in their annual statements, what would it be? Well, because these are utilities, it tends to focus on their CO2 emissions. So we look at CO2 emissions per unit of power generated is one way. So if I'm a utility and I own 10 power plants, uh, out of those 10 power plants, how much is the CO2 emitted versus the non-CO2 emitting resource? So for example, a nuclear plant emits no CO2. So if I have eight nuclear plants and two coal plants, then my CO2 emissions are lower than if I have the opposite. Or if I have 
two coal plants, five gas plants, and a whole bunch of solar farms, then my CO2 emissions come down over time as I add cleaner resources to the mix. So one unit of measure would be, what are my CO2 emissions relative to the amount of power that I produce? And do companies currently disclose that? We're working on it. Leslie, are there regulatory differences across states, regions, and industries? Absolutely. So even without a federal policy on reducing carbon emissions, states are moving full speed ahead. So California wants to be 50% renewable by 2030. New York State has a goal of 50% renewable. Massachusetts put in goals for, I think, 3,000 megawatts of offshore wind and thousands of megawatts of solar. So the states are going in and taking control of their own destiny and saying, I want to move forward. My governor, my state legislature, my voters, my residents want this, even if it might cost more. Other states are saying, no thanks. Now, what's interesting is if you look at a state like Texas, so Texas it has sun, it has wind, has coal, it has nuclear, it has plenty of gas. It has a governor who historically has not expressed an interest in participating in the clean power plan. Yet, it's an open competitive market. And so what gets built? Lots of wind and now increasingly lots of solar because it's cheap and the resources are plentiful and you can sell it into the market and make a good so return. So what you're saying is even without regulatory, these changes and transformations are happening economically? Yes. But as a private owner, we need to make sure that we're on top of what the new regulations may be. And so you know, from a long-range plan perspective, we need to ensure that we are going to be compliant as we go forward and look at our emissions or whatever else might be affecting it. So it's interesting to try and have to figure out, if you're in multiple states, what changes there may be coming down the pike and with a, an administration in state and local government and federal government that may have different views. How do you really plan for that? Amanda, from your perspective, the infrastructure sector, what is the breakdown of renewable energy versus traditional energy? So we, we consider renewable to be core, core plus infrastructure. We have about somewhere in the range of 35% of our clients' money in renewables. Some people don't consider renewables to be infrastructure. Uh, those are generally folks who are looking at rooftop solar and so forth and aren't seeing the long-term contracts that we see when, when we invest. So we wouldn't invest in sort of residential, which doesn't have those contracts. Um, so it's a little bit of a different definition of what renewables are, but utility-scale renewables for us, core core plus infrastructure, and, and again, makes up about 35% of where our investors' money is. How do you measure climate risk for your investors? So it's an interesting question because the materiality of climate risk changes given whatever companies we're looking at. So you can't just say, for example, you could say in utilities, CO2 emissions are the primary thing that you care about. We have water companies, we have ports, we have airports, we have electricity distribution, natural gas distribution. It varies. And we have to take, you know, as an ESG mandate, materiality is key. So we have to look at each of our companies and determine what environmental factors are material to their sustainable long-term operations. So, for example, for a, um, a water utility, we would absolutely look at preparedness for extreme weather events. We would look at drought resiliency, um, so water supply resiliency, and we would look at customer sort of demand based on you know, global warming. So those would be the areas we'd look at, not so much CO2 emissions. In the companies that we own, what are the main challenges with measuring climate risk? We hear about scope one, two, and three. No one seems to have consistency in reporting. Why? I mean, that's exactly it. So the definition of scope one, pretty clear. You can figure out scope two, 
for the most part, but scope three is completely opaque. It's unclear what you should be taking responsibility for besides, you know, Can sort you of just business. go back for the listener? Scope one is? Sure. Scope one is, is actually generated emissions. Scope two is emissions generated by things that you purchase. So if you purchase electricity to run your plant, then you, that would be a scope two uh, CO2 emission. And then scope three is, for example, business travel miles. And that you can sort of understand and figure out. But then it also includes if you have a fleet of vans bringing you goods and services, do you count the CO2 emissions from that van, even though they're actually owned by some other third party? And that's incredibly confusing because, in theory, the third party should be claiming those CO2 emissions, and you'll be double counting from a total if you if you include them as well. So scope three gets very opaque. Um, there's no clarity from our perspective on how to do that. So when we report, we have 15 different reports and 15 footnotes. And that is a tremendous problem for anyone trying to compare apples to apples. So until people get some rigidity around what scope three really is or just say I'm only going to report scope one and scope two – it's very hard to compare. I don't know if the public sector has the same issues, but from a private sector standpoint, apples to apples are almost impossible. Leslie, investors are demanding carbon metrics in regions, especially such as France. Can you share with investors what you would be looking at? So for those companies that generate power, it's fairly straight ahead. We know how much power they generate, what fuel source it comes from, and what the carbon emissions are. So that part is clear. The question is, in particular, for example, the U.S. utility industry is grappling with trying to standardize across all of the utilities how they report the data. So as I mentioned earlier, is it total carbon emissions per your whole generation portfolio? Is it um, total carbon emissions per your sales revenues? Is it total carbon emissions per your segment business reporting. So you could have a company that owns some coal plants, but they own two plants and they're a $50 billion market cap company. And so in the scope of, is it relevant to their stock or their net income or their customers? It's so small relative to the whole pie. So that's what, as investors, we sort of struggle with the materiality factor. So that's that's where the judgment comes in, but actually measuring the carbon output for the companies is fairly straight ahead. And I would imagine it would get much more complex when you put in 17 other sectors such as consumer and financials and others. Very difficult. You have clients in your strategy that are interested in ESG reporting. Do you report on climate risk or is it too complex? We, we do report on, on climate, various climate factors. And, and at the moment, it's, it's somewhat of a blunt tool. And we do make all of our companies kind of conform to certain measures that we've decided are material for most of them. So CO2 emissions, water usage, um, electricity generated, uh, and some environmental compliance matters are what we'll report to our investors. As we develop with our ESG strategies across our portfolio, we will report more on what is material to each individual company. And so that's part of the plan. But the initial tracking and reporting has been more of a, a blunt tool. And I think our investors appreciate it. it. It's a start. And as we all know, ESG is a bit of a journey. So getting out there with any numbers at all is a good start from a private infrastructure manager. Leslie, when we engage with our companies, 
we are trying to share with them what we think are best practices. We don't have to own every company. But once a year, we can vote proxies. And I know that you work with our corporate governance specialists and are very involved in a partnership in how we vote. Are there any trends that you can share with us in your sector that are emerging? Absolutely. So following the Paris Climate Agreement, we saw a number of shareholder proposals called a two-degree scenario analysis. So that is to say, um, if the temperature of the Earth rose two degrees, the, the goal of these proposals is to say, how would your company be impacted? So some high-profile examples would be some of the major oil producers, where shareholders have said, if oil demand declines, what happens to your entire asset base? It's now coming up on utility proxies as well. So shareholders are asking um, many utilities this proxy season, please do a complete two-degree scenario analysis of what that would mean for your business. So how I approach it with our corporate governance team is we engage directly with the company. We know their assets. We know, importantly, their business plans. So one flaw with some ESG analysis is that it's backward looking. So it looks at what were your emissions in 2015, and that is a static number, and we think that's bad. Uh, A shareholder might say, we think that's bad. Well, you might not be taking into consideration that their emissions have already declined by 15% and are on the way to declining another 15% or something like that. So When we do the proxy analysis, we have the insight into where a company's going and are they making reasonable efforts to get there as fast as they can, bearing in mind that their customers don't want to see their retail rates go up 50% in one year because they shut every single power plant. That's just not practical. It's not good public policy. It wouldn't be good for the states, the customers, the utilities. It it would really not be good for anyone. So when we vote those two-degree scenario proposals, we take into consideration, is the company making its best efforts? And I'll tell you, during this last proxy season, we voted yes for some and no for others. And you would vote, just to elaborate on that, you would vote yes for some and no for others because the companies are already acting in a way that would forward the 2%. Because the companies are moving forward with trying to decarbonize their portfolios as fast as they can. So action is better than... Yes, inaction. Right. And action is better than reporting. Yes. um, Amanda, for the private sector, you engage in a slightly different way. Yeah, we have the, I guess, the benefit of being able to directly engage. And so our proposals, or not proposals, our our efforts are towards... Directly engage or control? Because... Leslie directly engages. She makes recommendations. As an owner of a private company, how is it different? So we set up our governance um, to have mostly independent directors on our boards and then have our management um, so that our board of directors can be there between ourselves and management in order to ensure that our investor objectives are met. So whilst one of our members will sit on the board, the majority of the board will be independent to bring in those complementary skill sets. So we'll discuss at the board what's material to, to the companies, and then we'll engage with management on what's material to those companies, including compensation alignment to ensure that those goals are met. So for example, if there's a health and safety concern at 
a company from a social perspective, there'll be compensation alignment to ensure that management is focused on those issues. If there is, in fact, a need to decarbonize, that will be part of the sort of short-term and or long-term compensation alignment to ensure, again, that those objectives are being met and are being focused on. So we get to put the sort of G in, a, in the front for ESG and really drive E and S through our governance. Do you think that U.S. companies will change their behavior given that the U.S. has pulled out of the Paris Climate Agreement? No. No. And why? As I said, many of the states are moving ahead with their own aggressive agendas, New York, California, and others. And two, the economics of renewables are such that even the states that really don't necessarily have cleaning the air as their primary objective are saying, I want to lower customer bills. So, yes, it's the cost drivers of low-cost renewables, low-cost natural gas is really leading the companies to stay the course, and I haven't seen any strategy changes. We've already invested to do it. Our investors are, are asking us to do it. We have assets, obviously, that aren't in the U.S. as well, but it's already happening. So it's not going to change just because uh, we've pulled out of an accord. I think everyone has is, is already made their investments, and they will f- continue to fulfill those. Amanda, your business is global. Can you share with us any trends that you're seeing in Europe and or Asia? Sure. I think, uh, you know, in Europe, obviously, strong dedication to decarbonization, lots of support from governments, local and and, uh, state governments, lots of support from companies. So I think you'll see continued focus on renewables, continued focus on decarbonization in general. I think you'll you'll find uh, battery storage taking off there as well. Um, But, you know, natural gas is still going to be part of the mix. These are very old systems. They've been set up for a very long time. You know, in the UK, for example, heating and and cooking is is driven mostly by natural gas. So it will be a long time before that gets replaced. So as you look at investment opportunities, natural gas is going to play a part. As far as transportation goes, electrified trains getting there. But again, massive, you know, infrastructure money needed. And so it will be a while before we move to totally electrified trains. So, you know, diesel will still play a part in the transportation system in Europe. But I think you will see a faster move towards decarbonization in Europe. Asia, great opportunities. I mean, I think we got to pollute for a really long time, and they're coming up through their sort of global growth. And we're saying to them, you can't pollute, and they're listening. And they're you know, really taking a lot of tremendous steps to really improve their decarbonization. Wind and solar, very, very good opportunities. But as we talked about before, you have to be focused on the governance. You have to be focused on the strategy. It's not just that you're in the right ball field by being a renewable. You have to do it right. Leslie and Amanda, what one final thought might you leave with the listeners? Yeah, I would just say that, you know, the world is changing. And as you look to make an investment, you need to embrace both the risks and the opportunities that these changes present. And as a long-term investor, you have to be able to consider what's coming down the pike. And there are both risks and opportunities. I couldn't agree with Amanda Moore. An example would be seven years ago when I started at J.P. Morgan, coal companies and coal stocks were still riding high. Those went belly up. They went bankrupt. They were terrible investments for investors, and we were not invested there. Looking forward, renewable energy is clearly an investment theme that should be capitalized within our portfolios because 
that's where the economic drivers are, as well as the political will to get towards a cleaner world. So I think there's ways to make the environment cleaner and make money. And there are clearly winners and losers. So key considerations would be to really focus on um, the assets that these companies own, their strategies, and discern which is going to be the long run winners and losers, and then to place your investments accordingly. And just to follow up on that, you know, just because renewables are, are clearly going to be here, and they're going to be a beneficial add to the energy mix, you have to still pay attention to the strategy of the company, to the governance of the company. Just because you're in the right field doesn't mean you're doing the right thing. We've seen some high-profile solar companies fall from grace. And, and that was not a result of their product, and it was not a result of their project. It was a result of their strategy. So there's an example where you know stock selection and analysis is critical. So um, some ESG portfolios were heavily invested in some of the solar startup companies or the the panel makers, and and those have been really annihilated. Many of those companies have gone bankrupt. Uh, Solar panels are a commodity. That's not where we make money. So really distinguishing between the the companies and then picking the winners and losers within that universe is really key to making the ESG strategy at alpha. So you can't have your ESG in alpha too? Absolutely. Positively. Thank you both for joining Insights. It's super to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. That was a great opportunity. Thank you for joining us today on J.P. Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website, recorded on June 15, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by J.F. Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. 
in Singapore by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 2011-20355-E, in Taiwan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited, in Japan by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency. Registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited, in Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.